into our, our study today. Um, there are a couple of copies of the book up here if you forgot yours, um, if you want to borrow one or if you don't have one, uh, feel free to, to take one. Um, I think we have found this uh, pretty good. Uh, it's, it runs, it hits the basics of, um, of some of the support. If this is your first foray into apologetics, as we've kind of noticed, this builds a pretty good basis. And I think uh, this book kind of hits a lot of the, the most common attacks on Christianity that we hear. And today, this one is, 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 pretty, is pretty fun. It's pretty good. Um, and it's one of these that continually um, we find great evidence in support of Christianity uh, on the topic of archaeology. Um, so on page 33 is where we're at. Uh, the last time we met, um, if you look at the conclusion there on page 32, uh, remember the last thing we spoke about is kind of related to archaeology, but it's uh, uh, criticism, right? We talked about um, not, histor not historical criticism, but we talked about um, textual, thank you. Yeah, textual criticism, where we look at the texts, we, we study them like a science. Um, and uh, we see here, I, I like this, I just wanted to touch on this uh, conclusion to, to sum it up. As we have seen, we're on page 32, as we have seen, there are excellent reasons for trusting the text of the New Testament. It's far from being hopelessly corrupted by scribes pushing their own theological agendas. The manuscript evidence is so good that textual critics are able to reconstruct the original wording with remarkable accuracy. In the very few places where they cannot or where they have discovered later editions, no core tenet of Christianity is affected by such variants. Simply put, despite being copied imperfectly, imperfectly at times, the text is sufficiently accurate for us to understand the author's teachings. We remain confident and justified, therefore, in referring to the New Testament as God's inspired truth. And that really is one of the beautiful things about, about defending the Bible and anything else, I guess, is that the more you know it, <laughs> the better you know your Bible, the more, the more, the more of a um, uh, mighty fortress uh, it is for you. The more you know it, the, the, more, the, better, the better you are able to defend it. So I do like that, that, that fact that our Lord has built into it, um, that it's not like a lie. Remember with lies and fables, you know, when you tell your kids that you went uphill in the snow, you know, every, every morning to school, and they say, yeah, and they say, oh, what year was that? When was that? And you say, oh, it was 19, it was in the city of, you know, you want it to be as, as vague as possible. You don't want them to look closely at the details. Christianity, on the other hand, says, nope, we lay it all out on the table. Look at the details. Uh, and you too will be convinced. Now, I did also want to point out there was some discussion, I think, on Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism. Um, you know, and, and this is uh, applicable to all these chapters. Do you know what Mormons, what they, why, if you ask them, why do you believe the Book of Mormon? Do you know, do you know what kind of answer they'll usually have? Yeah. I feel that it's true, right? 
I've got a, uh, it was popular in the past generations for uh, Mormons to say, I have a burning in my bosom, right? There is, there is this burning feeling that it is true, right? And a lot of Christians, when you ask them, well, why do you trust the Bible? I, I have heard people, Christians say the same thing, right? Oh, it just, it, well, it's God's word. Well, I mean, okay, yes, that's true and good, but, you know, Mormons would say that about their book. Muslims would say that about the Quran, right? You know, we, it is beneficial for us to know, you know, why it is that we believe the Bible is trustworthy. It's not just because it makes us feel good. Oh, and if the Bible makes you feel good, just makes you feel good, you're reading it wrong. <laughs> supposed, to, supposed to hurt, you know. Uh, and, uh, and, and your pastor, too. <laughs> um, that uh, God's word, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis, I've quoted this in sermons. C.S. Lewis said, if I went to Christianity just to feel good, I knew, I didn't go to Christianity just to make myself feel good. I know a good bottle of port would do that. Um, but going, but finding our Christianity because it is true and it gives something that we cannot find anywhere else. So the word of God, it's not just like a, a burning in our chest, our bosom, right? Uh, it's not that we feel that it's true. Um, because can you argue with feelings? Well, yeah, you can argue with your own feelings, but I can't argue with yours, right? Somebody tells me, I feel this. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, I, I'm not going to get into it too much, um, but the devil knows this, but also, you know, we saw this over the last three years with the virus. It's when people did not feel safe, there was really nothing we could really say to them to convince them that, that they, in, in many regards, they were, right? You still kind of see it, people um, driving around in their, in their car with their mask on, um, you know, by themselves, and I'm not, I'm not mocking it. Don't hear me doing that. But I cannot argue, we cannot debate when somebody has, has feelings, like with a, a kid at night when they're going to bed and they say, I think I feel there's a monster under my bed. And you tell them, well, there's no, there's no such, there's no monster under your bed. No, can you please just hug me? You know, can you please just sing me a song? You know, can you please, please? And, uh, you know, you, you can explain to the kid how monsters are, well, the monster they think is not real, um, you know, and these things. And, and so you cannot debate feelings. Um, somebody falls in love with somebody. You know, uh, your, your kid falls in love with somebody that you just know is rotten, right? How do you, how do you convince them of their feelings, you know? Um, and so, what's that? It takes one. <laughs> I, won't, I won't say that on the internet. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. I still want to give you plausible deniability when the time comes. No, officer, she never said anything to me about premeditated, yeah. Um, yeah. 
But, you know, and that's why it's important. Yes, Christianity involves feelings, and we do receive the peace that surpasses all understanding. However, the reliability of the scriptures in our faith, it's not a feeling. Uh, it, it cannot be. And even St. Paul bases Christianity on the fact, a historical fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. That's something that Christianity says, you want to you wanna debate about the, the truthfulness of Christianity, let's talk about facts. We're going to set our feelings aside and let's talk about facts because these facts will give you peace. They will give you uh, these things. Uh, so um, now let's move on then onto page 33. That's all I wanted to say in conclusion to that since we were talking about Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness and these things that they really do base the truthfulness on, in day-to-day in -day interactions, they base it on feelings. They just feel that, that Joseph Smith was right. Okay, uh, verse, uh, verse page 33. Now uh, there is the, the lie there is little archaeological evidence to support Scripture. And this is by um, Paul Meyer, Dr. Meyer, and he's very well known. You type his name out and you will see uh, he's, got <laughs> he's got plenty of credentials. Uh, Dr. Meyer writes this, uh, Biblical minimalists falsely assert that the Bible's historical record is not supported by archaeological discovery. Artifacts, including the Sennacherib prison, prism, Assyrian, the Siloam tunnel inscription, and the Cyrus cylinder, which is Persian, corroborate Old Testament accounts of historical events. Artifacts, including the Pilate stone and the theater at Ephesus, corroborate New Testament accounts and historical events. Of all the attacks on Scripture, past and present, this is likely the most extreme example of a totally wrong-headed assumption. Studying the assertion that there is little archaeological evidence to support Scripture shows that quite the opposite is the case. Look in any dictionary of the Bible and you'll find dozens of examples of archaeological discoveries which correlate exactly with the Old or New Testaments. These are usually accompanied by photographs of the evidence discovered. The range of such discoveries includes everything from the foundations of ancient structures in urban areas to specific artifacts, things demonstrating intelligent involvement. For example, something not put there by Mother Nature. Some of these artifacts are kitchen utensils, ceramic jars, cups, and the like, carpenter's tools, and most importantly, tablets and or scrolls with writing on them. Among these ancient documents are hieroglyphics of various styles and eras from digs in Egypt. There are also cuneiforms, wedge writing made with a stylus on soft clay tablets, which were then baked for permanence and discovered in Asiatic lands. When first deciphered, many of these discoveries correlated handsomely with biblical evidence. Believers were happy to use this young science in defending their faith. Christians used to assume, quite confidently, that the spade was the Bible's best friend. The hard evidence unearthed by archaeologists digging in the Holy Land would, once the dust of controversy was cleaned off, unfailingly support the biblical record. Early excavations in the Near East were often funded by Christian organizations. The portrait of a faith-filled archaeologist marching off to his dig with Bible in one hand and spade in the other was quite familiar. 
Archaeological greats like William Foxwell Albright virtually invented the discipline called biblical archaeology. So assured were they that the stones would indeed cry out the truth of Scripture. A series of stunning archaeological discoveries that directly corroborated places, personalities, and events in the Old and New Testaments only confirmed the general impression that biblical records were historically very reliable. Journals like Biblical Archaeology Review and Bible in Space implied as much in their very titles. How about that? The, um, the author threw in this Bible verse, this text, that when the enemies of the gospel told Jesus to tell his disciples to shut up, and what did Jesus say? Even though stones, right? If these were quiet, even the stones would cry. Isn't that an interesting use of that passage to relate it to archaeology? I think that's pretty cool. I think that's a, that's a nice use of that verse. But even the Bible talks about this. You know, you, the, the psalmist writes and says, the, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? The, yeah, nature preaches a God. Uh, nature preaches uh, this very thing, and so it should be no surprise that archaeology would do the same the more we look at this. Bottom of page 34. Biblical minimalists. Despite the overpowering archaeological evidence favoring Scripture, however, over the last 20 years, a fresh group of archaeologists caused something of a sensation. They found only minimal support to the Bible and archaeology, these biblical minimalists attacked the widespread appreciation of archaeology and tried to deny most claims that the Old Testament reflects any history whatsoever. There was no Abraham, no slavery in Egypt, no Moses, no Exodus, no Israelite conquest of the Holy Land. If there ever was a King David, he was a petty tribal leader with control only of a small territory around Jerusalem. Solomon and other kings of Judah and Israel suffered the same fate until King Hezekiah so the biblical minimalists claim. Leaders of such nonsense are Lemke and Thompson of the University of Copenhagen, Israel Finkelstein, Professor Emeritus at Tel Aviv University, seems to enjoy sawing off the very limbs on which he and even the state of Israel rest their historical claims on the land. Among those who oppose biblical minimalism is veteran archaeologist William Deaver of the University of Arizona. Deaver was critical enough to attack the bias he claims to find in the term biblical archaeology, but also terms the minimalist approach as postmodernist malarkey. The evidence. Hundreds of pages could be devoted to most important correlations between the Bible and archaeology of the Holy Land and many more to a full critique of the critics and their outrageous claims. Here we will cite only some of the most important evidentiary claims in the positive correlations. Old Testament examples. All right. The Sennacherib prism. After conquering the ten northern tribes of Israel, the Assyrians moved southward to do the same for Judah. This is in 2 Kings 18 and 19. The prophet Isaiah, however, told Hezekiah that God would protect Judah and Jerusalem against Sennacherib, 2 Chronicles and Isaiah. Assyrian records virtually confirm this. The cuneiform, that's how I'm going to pronounce it. I don't know how you pronounce it. I've heard people say 
cuneiform, cuneiform, but I'm going to say cuneiform, so get over it. The cuneiform on a hexagonal 15-inch baked clay prism found at the Assyrian capital of Nineveh describes Sennacherib's invasion of Judah in 701 BC. It claims the Assyrian king shut Hezekiah inside Jerusalem like a caged bird. However, like the biblical record, it does not claim that Sennacherib conquered Jerusalem. The prism certainly would have done this had it been the case. In fact, the Assyrians bypassed Jerusalem on their way to Egypt. The city would not fall until the time of Nebuchadnezzar and the Neo-Babylonians. Sennacherib himself returned to Nineveh and was murdered by his own sons. All right. So, uh, have any of y'all heard of this Sennacherib prism? Well, you can't say no. I've talked about this in Bible study. (laughs) I'm giving you a hard time. I know. I've slept since then, too. Yeah, the Sennacherib prism and uh, some of these artifacts that we find, we're going to talk about a cylinder of Cyrus the Great here also, too, is it's funny that a lot of these kings, when they wanted to brag, when they wanted to be remembered in history as having all these wonderful and big accomplishments, you know, they think that they are bragging about defeating these people of Israel, defeating these people who were monotheists, who called on one God, they, they would conquer them, and then they would have their scribes write these records down, you know, kind of as a, in spite, saying, where is your God now, right? Who would have thunk that some thousand years, thousands of years later, that the, these actually become archaeological proof for the existence of God's people? So, you know, if we think about that and apply it even to our own lives, that our losses, our what appears to be defeats in this world and in this life, might just turn out to be what? How would we, how would we word that? How would we word that? How can we, how can we look at these things? Yeah. Our lives, and think about Job, too. Think about his personal life, right? And, and how it's a testimony and how it encourages so many generations, you know, to, to trust in God and what he does. And so then to have that sort of perspective, to take a 30,000-foot a view of our supposed losses in this life and to say, hmm, I guess God might use all things for the good of those who believe. Just maybe. Because think back, I mean, this is, you know, 700 BC. You know, what is, so 700 and then 2000. I mean, God is kind of waiting like 3,000 years <laughs> to show us, his people, how he is using it for good. Are you ready to wait that long? <laughs> <laughs> for your personal losses, right? Your our troubles, the seemingly, you know, even political seemingly losses we might face in this life or things. Okay, so God says, all right, just wait. In 3,000 years, I'll show you. <laughs> uh, what is a thousand years to our Lord, right? And uh, man, yeah. 
So what a beautiful picture that the opponents of Christianity, where are they now? Right? Where are they? Right? Those who poke fun, where are they? You know, and even uh, I think Wednesday I pointed that out about Jesus, right, on the cross and those who pulled his beard and spit on him. Where are they now? Right? Okay. Uh, Hezekiah's Siloam Tunnel Inscription. King Hezekiah of Judah ruled from 721 to 686 B.C. I, you know, I just had another thought, too, that when we, when, we, when we seemingly suffer a loss or something in Christianity, we need to encourage our enemies to brag about it. Say, hey, yeah, talk about this. Yeah, write it down. I want you to be a witness that, that y'all thought you won against us. You know, write it down. Etch it in stone. Yeah, talk about how the churches are dwindling in number. Yeah, talk about how our membership is down. Talk about how the Christian church has lost influence. Talk about it. Yeah, make sure you remember that because it's going to be a testimony for us, for our Lord Jesus Christ's faithfulness. Okay, there you go. So, um, fearing a siege by Assyrian Sennacherib, he preserved Jerusalem's water supply by having a tunnel cut through 1,750 feet of solid rock from the Gihon Spring to the Pool of Siloam inside the city walls, 2 Kings 20 and 2 Chronicles 32. At the Siloam end of the tunnel, an inscription celebrates this remarkable accomplishment. The inscription is presently in the Archaeological Museum at Istanbul. The tunnel is probably the only biblical site that has not changed its appearance in 2,700 years. Mm -hmm. So King Hezekiah here and um, Jerusalem's water supply. Very good. Okay, another archaeological proof of the Old Testament. The cylinder of Cyrus the Great in 2 Chronicles 36 and Ezra 1 report that Cyrus the Great of Persia after conquering Babylon, permitted Jews in the Babylonian captivity to return to their homeland. Isaiah had even prophesied precisely this in Isaiah 44. This tolerant policy of the founder of the Persian Empire is borne out by the discovery of a nine-inch clay cylinder found at Babylon from the time of Cyrus's conquest, 539 B.C. The cylinder reports Cyrus's conquest of Babylon and his subsequent policy of permitting Babylonian cap captives to return to their homes and even rebuild their temples. So a nine inch, so less than a foot, little clay tablet. Pretty cool, pretty neat. Okay, all right, New Testament examples. The archeological discoveries impinging on the New Testament are most impressive since they are younger and therefore better preserved. Again, the examples that follow are only a small fraction of what is available. The pilot stone. A two by three foot stone discovered at Caesarea in 1961 was the first epigraphic evidence of Pontius Pilate ever found. The left facing portion of the stone had been chipped away for reuse so that only, there you go, uh, Tivis Pilatus, ah uh, yeah, Tias, Pilatus, Pilatus, remains of Pilate's name in the middle line. The stone is now in the Israel Museum at Jerusalem. Okay, so here, uh, up until this point, we hadn't found any, any written 
uh, hard written uh, chisel, uh, you know, inscribed evidence of Pontius Pilate existing um, until they found this stone. Uh, and I think this stone itself had also been repurposed. This stone originally would have been, you know, a, a, a headstone of some sort on like a building or, or such, uh, talking about being dedicated to Pilate or, or something of that under the rule of Pilate, something of that nature. I don't remember precisely what, what they think it said. Um, however, then when that building was destroyed, you know, they said, why get rid of all these stones? And so then they used those stones like in a, in, for steps for another building. And then that building just was lost to time. And archaeologists, when they are unearthing this building, they find these stones and then they find the writing. They're, they're steps and they find the writing on them and they're like, whoa, what is this? So it's really curious that this stone that has Pilate's name on it it wasn't completely destroyed when they repurposed it. It wasn't just broken up to use for, um, you know, gravel base for a foundation. That it was preserved and then used as a step and then still yet preserved there. So twice, right? Twice it was used. So this is why my, my beloved wife loves me so much is because I hang on to, com to computer cords and t-shirts because these will be some sort of archaeological, <laughs> yes, yes. The church is going to rest on my, my collection of t-shirts and computer cables. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is the, yep, this is the plight of every husband and man, I think now in the last 20 years. I might need that cord someday, but honey, I know the Lord can do mighty things with this cord. <laughs> The Lord can do mighty things with these t-shirts, so. <laughs> okay, very good. Um, so the pilot stone, this is something that was repurposed, and then even yet God preserved that writing. And God, you know, didn't reveal it to us until the 1960s. So up until that point, there was no outside archaeological proof of Pilate even existing. But now look at the beauty of the Christians who continued to confess the Apostles' Creed. Who was crucified, right? Suffered under Pontius Pilate, right? The church continually confessed that, you know, and, and that's the thing about confessing the creed is we actually, it's, it's historical, when we confess the creed, um, it, is, it, is, it is an apologetic. It says, uh, we mention real people in history. We mention real events. And we say, yeah, I, I mean, just think about that. Christians, for how many generations, were willing to confess something that, had, that God had not revealed archaeologically yet. And, and they are the ones, you know, we are the ones benefiting from this now too that they passed the creed down to their children. They confessed the creed even in the face of opposition when the church is being persecuted. And they say, you know, do you, do you renounce your faith? And they confess the Apostles' Creed and that's the last thing they said before they were put to death. Uh, you know, the, uh, this is a beautiful thing. Uh, I think about that often in regards to this pilot stone um, and how we shouldn't be afraid to continue to confess the creeds and to use those 
because they teach us of the truth of Jesus and historical events. You know, um, other religions that are found, you know, they, they, they don't, other religions like, you know, Eastern religions too, Hinduism, Buddhism, whatever, they don't care that you can't show archaeological proof for their religions. And that's kind of a, a weird thing to think about because they are looking at their religions just to give them an inner peace. Their religions are just to get a nice feeling, a reason to, to exist, if you will, to, to arrive at some sort of nirvana, right? This made-up place. That's all they have are hopes and dreams. And it doesn't matter to them that it's not archaeologically supported. And, and that's one of, the, that's one of the, the hard shells that pagan religions have, is that you can't prove they're true, but you also can't conclusively prove they're, they're not true. But you see, that's where Christianity is completely opposite of that. It has been proven true and dares you and says, here is how you disprove it. And that's why we confess Pilate's name in the creed and the historical event. You want to show that Christianity is false? Prove to us that these people did not exist. So um, this is also why it's important why we right, in the church, not only confess the creed and hold on to that, but also that, that, that our, our hymns and our, our lessons and the way we teach, that we are willing to be corrected. You know, our hymns, it, these hymns, you know, sometimes people say, well, pastor, what's wrong with this song? Why can't we sing it in church? It doesn't say anything wrong. Well, it also doesn't preach anything true. You know, we are willing and ready to proclaim not only, not only truth, um, um, but we, are, um, we also avoid, what does St. Paul call it, um, mindless babble, right? A, no, a noisy gong, you know, without, without love. Uh, so, the interesting pilot stone in 1961. Okay, uh, any, uh, any thoughts or anything else on that? Anybody? Okay, the theater at Ephesus, I guess I have to say theater, the excavated theater at ancient Ephesus, seating 24,000, was an important part of city life. The Arcadian Way stretched westward from the theater to the ancient harbor, since silted over. It was lined on either side with mosaics and shops. Acts 19 records a two-hour riot occasioned by Paul's teaching that took place at the site. So let's go to Acts 19. Let's just take a look at this. Acts 19. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Uh, if you're in your Lutheran study Bible, it's going to be on page 1876.
Okay, and in Acts 19, the riot that is there, um, we're going to be in verse 21. I want to read all of chapter 19, but we'll just start at verse 21, um, this account. Uh, Acts 19, verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew... For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. When he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So Acts 19 talks about and mentions this, this riot, but it also mentions this great place, right? The theater at Ephesus and how this was a well-known place and how all the crowds were there. And what do you notice about the crowd? What, what, there's some interesting details that are mentioned. They don't know why they're there. They're just there hooting and a hollering, right? They, there's, it's kind of like these riots that we see going on even in our nation at all times in history. It goes to show that rioters, 
generally, many times they don't even know why they're angry, but they are, right? Yep, yep, and they just want to break things. They just want to destroy stuff. But look who then stopped the riot. That, that's, that was curious in, in, my, my, uh, in my reading of this too, is that um, the town clerk, right, quieted the crowd and uh, said, hey, we've got courts for this. So it's quite curious, quite interesting. But here, of course, they have found this theater at Ephesus and uh, realized that this was an important part of the city of life. And here, St. Paul uh, has spoken of it and uh, this, this place here. Um, yeah, a great study in, in crowds and riots. Uh, this riot only lasted two hours, though, uh, so that's kind of interesting. Um, about two hours, they cried with one voice. And, you know, great is Artemis the Ephesians. You know, they were, they were shouting a creed, weren't they? The pagans, they were shouting a creed. If, if what? Oh, any rainbows. Were you saying something too? Artemis would have been really big. Yeah. Pretty big deal. The gods, the gods of their nation. Right? So uh, something for us to contemplate and ask ourselves, what are the gods of our, of our, our time? What are our gods? Conclusions. The few examples in this article barely skim the surface of what is available, yet they more than demonstrate that the stones cry out even to the present day. All right, pretty great. Um, so uh, this is um, also one of the reasons, you know, in, in going to textual criticism and some of these other, other uh, uh, very Christian things, um, you know, I know, and there is, um, oh, well, I'm just going to say it, um, that, you know, people, and, and I understand it and I get it, and we talk about things like, um, well, let's just print, you know, our hymns and stuff in the bulletin. We don't want to use the hymnal. Or even also, too, let's, let's project the words on the screen, you know, let's make it all electronic. If our forefathers had done that, think of all the things we would not have, right? And even consider the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is the first hymnal of the church, maybe. I don't know. Maybe you musicians, is there another first hymnal? Um, sorry. I, I'm, I'm picking on our, our, our organist who's here for the first time. And I'm, I'm pointing him out to everybody. Uh, but Pastor Vogel also walked in, too. So... Um, to think that if our forefathers, um, those who came before us, if they said, well, let's just, you know, for convenience sake, let's just, you know, write these down and then just throw them in the recycling bin when it's, when it's done. You know, this is one of the reasons why the Lutheran Church continues to put out hymnals and they don't just email files to every church or every congregant. Yeah, that, that is convenient, but we need to note and, and take special note, you know, also too, when a grandparent or mom or dad dies, what's one of the great treasures you find? You find the family Bible, right? And hopefully it's well used, right? And there are notes in it and things like that. And so for you too, right? Buy these hard, tangible things because these, these are some of the reasons also too, like... Um, up, up here, uh, we have 
these are all the readings, the three-year lectionary, these are all the readings for all the church services this year. Did you know that this, that the ancient church did this too, and this is one of the ways in which we were able to reconstruct the New Testament, is because churches had all the readings in a collection, a lectionary, and those, those endured even when, when Bibles did not. So, and with hymns and with, with songs and, and things like that, that hymns that, that record scripture word for word, uh, you know, these are all a testimony, a testament to the, the, the word of God which endures forever. And this could one day be an archaeological savior, using the term with a little s, um, for, God's, for God's word. Think about that. And that is why our church body has this tradition, and other church bodies too, of having hymnals and printing them out and having study Bibles and printing them out. And uh, that, that has been a testimony throughout all history uh, for the faithfulness of God. Well, we've gotten so used to destroying buildings and monuments mm, mm-hmm. that they don't even think about destroying them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, buildings too and their fleeting nature uh, and, and um, making them simple. Uh, you had a lot of these, you know, in, in ancient times, you know, some of these giant cathedrals and beautiful things. A lot of these churches and lay people and craftsmen started building on these things knowing that they would not be finished in their lifetime. But they know they would stand for generations as a witness and a testimony to God's faithfulness. Well, that's it. Um, We'll pick up next week, the next chapter. Um, Thank you for your time. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you, by your Son, Jesus Christ, have defeated all things, that even death, the last enemy to be destroyed, has been defeated. We pray now that as we hear your word, as we receive the body and blood of your dear Son, Jesus, that we would see that as a testimony, that even today, the body and blood of our dear Savior is a witness for our forgiveness and our strengthening in the faith and the unity that your Holy Spirit has created among us. We ask now this week that we would be encouraged by this, that we would be strengthened to live our lives all the more according to your will. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.